You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Barry, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, we're recording live at the Sapien Impact Hub in Menlo Park. But Barry, I got to thank you for taking the time to come all the way from San Francisco to here for this interview. I'm pretty excited. I mean, I'm a fan of your book. I did a ton of research before this interview. And the more research I did, the more excited about this interview I became. (laughs) You're too kind. Yeah. So with that, Barry, for our audience, can you give a brief introduction of your career, your background up until this point? Yeah, it's uh, like many things. It's not a direct line, right? Like I started off, I wanted to study technology and business in school. The first day I was sitting in my actual first class and lecturer, somebody started putting Java code up on the screen and I thought I was in the wrong class. Turned out I was in the right class and I was actually there to learn computer programming. So that got me sort of started. Um, My first ever job was working for a company here in San Francisco at citysearch.com. I don't know if you're ever familiar with them. No. Right. So City Search was um, in 99. They were a company that spun up at the Idea Lab set up by Bill Gross. And the idea was that you would pay like 50 bucks a month and we would come around to your shop, your restaurant, whatever it was, take a few photos and put it on this thing called the Internet. And you would get seanscafe.citysearch.com. That was sort of your website. Um, And we'd sort of, so people who were sort of getting familiar with the Internet, they could sort of purchase like websites and be on it. And our number one competitor was Zip2. Are you familiar with them? Zip2. I've heard that name. Yeah, yeah, you would have, of course. It was Elon Musk's first company. So we were sort of battling it out with them for like who was going to be the sort of provider of the internet for localized businesses. And we ended up uh, doing a deal uh, with Microsoft over time. They bought us out. But that, that sort of was my first start into what I would call like technology and product development. And it was fascinating. So it, that was 99. I, then I uh, went back to, grew up in Ireland and went back there to finish my degrees and started a mobile games development company uh, based in Edinburgh in Scotland. And um, again, this was sort of at the time, do you remember uh, the old Nokia phones? And they had this game called Snake on it. Would you be familiar with that? Oh God, yeah. I, I, the thing about the phones that I remember more than anything was just they were a brick and you could just throw them at the wall or anything nothing was going to happen to him. Right. Battery lasts for like five weeks on one charge, right? At the good old days when technology works, Sean, yeah. those days. Just after those phones, they, they started putting like really small microprocessors onto phones and suddenly you could port over um, very early games from the sort of 70s and 80s. And the first connectivity called WAP, Wireless Application Protocol, meant that you could send da- much higher qualities of data. So we started building these yeah, mobile games. One of them was like Tamagotchi, where you would keep a pet alive. I remember that. Right. I, I remember hearing someone had a pet for like six years and the pet died and then they offed themselves. Oh, well, that's pretty tragic. <laughs> Hopefully we weren't responsible for that. that. We built a game called Wireless Pets and it just exploded. And then suddenly we had all these companies from Sony to Disney to Sega, because nobody was building these games on mobile devices at that time. They were all our clients. The the company just skyrocketed in the first couple of years. And again, that was my first opportunity to sort of see what it was like to actually be in a startup and and it suddenly to get traction and and, and build. Um, But I was very young at the time, early 20s, didn't know how to grow a company. So after a couple of years, we blew that up and ended up traveling around uh, South America for six months. 
lived in Australia for five years working in, in education. And again, gaming, you'll, see, you'll hear this a lot in my story. The power of gaming is you're teaching people new skills. They're leveling up, right? They start off with a naive on things, but then on level one, they learn a skill and then level two and three. And so we were teaching people how to learn foreign languages, maths, arithmetic through gameplay and next generation e-content and learning. And then, yeah, after that, I moved back to London, started working in a company called ThoughtWorks, which was a big champion of the agile software development movement. And while I was there, I had the pleasure to work with some of the, the best people in the industry, especially engineers. I wrote Lean Enterprise, which was part of Eric Reese's Lean series. Uh, that book exploded. Next thing, I'm sitting in boardrooms with Fortune 500 execs teaching them how to build new products. And then, yeah, six years ago, I moved here to San Francisco from London, set up an independent business where I was either doing coaching or advising for uh, startups and Fortune 500s. And I wrote on Learn, which is the book we, we probably share a lot more on tonight. Um, and it's just been a pleasure today. Now I've just started a new venture studio. We're going to be the first venture studio to ever offer equity crowdfunding. It's called Nobody Studios. And um, we're building 100 companies over the next five years. So I'm back building. I'm having the time of my life. Yeah. Who knows? Well, we're going to talk about lots, but that's my story. I already got about 20 questions I'm going to ask you from the book from the venture studio to traveling and living abroad in all these different countries. We're going to cover a lot today, but I want to go all the way back to that first company when you were competing against Elon Musk's company. Well, I admit I did a lot of research before this interview. There was an opportunity where they were going to merge or acquire you, correct? Correct. Yeah. Why didn't that go through? What would have happened if it had? Yeah, well, you have to remember, like, this is like 20, 23, 24 years ago, right? So uh, Elon was not the Elon that everyone knows today. He was, he, him and his brother were just like two, any other hustlers, like trying to get started in the tech industry, right? And, and so there was, especially when it's a new in, in domain, right? People putting stuff on the internet. You don't know who the winners and losers are going to be. You don't know what people's capabilities and who they might turn into. But the boat companies had a lot of sort of shared space that they were working in. And Microsoft were trying to get into the space. And they had a, a product called Sidewalk. So it, like today, when you're that startup and then you're suddenly like, is Amazon going to get into this space or is Google going to get into that space? You're, you're, you're living fear that they could just show up and eat your whole market. But we ended up doing a deal where Microsoft got some of us and we, we got a payout from them. Elon ended up getting uh, bought out um, for whatever it was, 300 million at the time, which pretty much set him up then to go on and create PayPal. And I often joke, we don't really know what happened to Elon, but unfortunately we do. And that was the directory they went on. And again, it was just a really interesting space where people were sort of finding the edges of the internet. It was websites. Obviously, Elon went on to create uh, PayPal and started to look at payments on the internet. I got into mobile games development. The, all these sort of next waves of after the first innovation starts happening, and that's where it starts getting real fascinating, I think. And then that takes us kind of that step where you're talking about developing the whole agile, the whole lean. For our listeners and myself, honestly, what is agile? Yeah, so in this time, sort of like the late 90s, early 2000s, a lot of people were sort of getting frustrated with how software was being built. Right. There was this notion of a project that you would know in advance all your requirements. You just had to break down problems, write down all the requirements to be done, execute them, and everything would be perfect. Um, and even today, there's probably listeners here going, uh, those projects don't work. 
Right. So what we found was actually instead of having these big projects with big, long delivery cycles and lots of silos, what was better was to bring small cross-functional teams together and get them to work on a weekly basis where they try and break down problems into small deliverable pieces and ship them. And as you ship something, people would interact with it. You'd learn what worked and what didn't. Then you'd iterate. So that, that style of working was much more agile rather than this big long-term planning. And for me, that was just intuitive. That was the way I work. But as I started to work in that way, I found a community of people that were trying to do that. And that's what agile for me was. And over time, like these things, they become movements, they become uh, religion for some people, they become certification programs that you can get a tick box and But the essence sort of for me was always about rapid experimentation, break problems down into small bite-sized chunks, ship them to your customers soon, see how they react, iterate and build it. And the lean startup movement was exactly the same principles again. So that's sort of always been my makeup about building products, figuring out uncertainty, trying new things. I always have a big vision about what it could be and then start small and start iterating fast to see what works and what doesn't. And for me, that's what that Agile movement is. It's, it's over 20 years old now and four more incarnations later, it's called something else, I'm sure. But that's what really inspired me and got me involved with that community. Do you think the Agile movement, I mean, started 20 years ago, but with now, with the pandemic, we shut down and everyone had to change. Do you think that right now where, I mean, it seems like if you're not adaptable, if you're not able to change, you're going to struggle, you're going to have difficult times. Do you think that applies now more than ever? And only faster and more disruption ahead, right? Like I, I even joke, even with the studio, right? We talk about like the internet was a, what I consider like a friendly paradigm shift. And like 20 years later, now people are suddenly figuring out, wow, this internet has totally changed our lives from these terrible citysearch.com websites where you had like photos of a menu of what you could order. And it was, was definitely wasn't updated daily, believe me. To today, like if you can't press a button and get your din- dinner delivered to you and it's still warm and it's the food from all over the world, like you're, you're annoyed, right? Uh, but we're on the precipice of like seven, eight of these technology transformations all arriving together. So artificial intelligence, blockchain technology, utility, cloud computing, like it, it, miniaturization of phones and devices. This is really going to be a shakeup in a way that I don't think people are prepared for. So you're, as to your point about adaptability or adapting to changing circumstances, tackling things that are uncertain to you, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, trying new behaviors to get there. This is going to be the way the world is going to be. And if you can start building those muscles, building comfort and discomfort, you know, trying things that you're not good at, being curious about what the world is happening and, and exploring it. That's the stuff that's actually going to make you successful because it's only faster, it's more accelerated, it's more exponential. And I think that's what really excites me about the future and why I wrote these books to help people adapt to it. So I want to ask about the whole Lean Mythology book series, what books you'd recommend startup founders read. But before even that, I just thought of this question of in the future, you have emerging countries unstable, unpredictable, grow up in that environment. You have more, I don't want to say established, but US and that things are comfortable. There's not that disruption, but there's the availability of having that knowledge, that technology, those resources. Who do you think has the advantage moving forward with the disruption? An area where you grow up, 
with uncertainty or an area where you grow up with resources? Yeah, it's a it's a fun sort of contrast, right? Like the way I think about it now is information is pretty much it's pretty much free, right? Wikipedia is out there. If you want to learn about it, the barrier to to accessing it has just come radically down. Right. Even during the pandemic, like a billion more people were onboarded to the Internet over the last two years, primarily the majority in Southeast Asia. Right. Like, so that area is about to explode. People are going to be connected, get new information, new knowledge, learning, building. I'm just excited for what's going to happen there. This idea, though, like a little bit of like if it's been given to you or you got to earn it or if it's new to you or you've always been immersed in it. Right. Like the, there are questions everybody has to start asking of themselves. Because I think innovation will be always different depending on where you are. Things that work in the US mightn't work in South America, as could be different that works in Southeast Asia. So I think it's really interesting just to start being aware that more and more people are coming online, 8 billion people on the planet. I think the mobile phone has probably been one of the biggest innovations because now suddenly we're all connected to this thing called the internet with information. And it's really then down to people to start figuring out what are you going to do with that information? What problems are you going to see? How are you going to figure out how to solve them? Are you going to sit around and go, let someone else solve it? Are you going to get after it yourself? And that's what I get excited about. Okay, now the Lean Mythology book series. Tell me about that and tell me what books should entrepreneurs out there read, do their research, any that you recommend in the series or out of the series? Yeah. So I, like for me, again, my discovery path was like Lean Startup was written by Eric Reese, and he was writing uh, a blog initially called Startup Lessons Learned. And this was someone who was, he was figuring out how to build startups and journaling essentially on his experiences of testing things or not working or working in smaller batch sizes. or And, and that sort of like piqued my curiosity again, because I was like, oh, there's somebody writing about the stuff that I'm doing too, and, and it draws you into them. And then Eric, I think, published Lean Startup and probably even have to test my memory about when that book came out, but I'm going to guess like 2010, 2011. And again, a lot of these times, they're just an encapsulation of things people have sort of been doing, but someone just like nails it. That's it. That's the thing I was thinking of. And that's a huge wave then, right? Just like when you launch a product and everyone's like, I didn't know I needed Uber. But now it's here. That's exactly what I needed. Right. And that was a real special moment, I think. And I'd always encourage people that that's a great book to get started with understanding product development. And it's like 10 years old. It's it's as good as any book you'd read today. And for me, then we wrote Lean Enterprise that was much more focused around scaling businesses or larger enterprises. So if you're not a startup, I think that's a great place to start thinking about how you could do experimentation. But that whole series is just packed with like there's lean analytics for people who are like into metrics and understanding. There was lean customer development was all about talking to customers. So it was just like a calling card of a lot of great people who were sort of in this community, but looking at slightly different perspectives. So, yeah, I would just say dig into the whole lean series. It's it's super fun. And yeah, like I think so many of the lessons in there is true today as they were like 10 years ago when we wrote all those books. Okay. Now, if someone were to visit your website, which I recommend all our listeners to do right after this, right when they listen to this episode, it says, how does one cut through complexity and break through to growth? Please share with us the answer to this question. Yeah. Well, for me, I think the world is a noisy place, right? And it's easy to get 
bogged down and actually maybe somewhat overwhelmed by what's going on in the world and, and get stuck and what should I do? And But I always say like the way to shift your mindset is you got to act your way to a new way of thinking. You got to take steps. The way to reduce fear is to write down what fears you have and then prioritize them, pick one and see if it's real, test it. The way to build a product is to write down hypotheses that you have about the world and design an experiment, pick one and test it. So, so what I'm constantly working with companies is when they're worried about choices they have to make, when they're struggling, they can't seem to get breakthroughs, it's really helping them think big about all the options, get them out on the table and then start small. Pick, like get really focused on one area and start testing it. And that's how you start cutting through everything. Complexity, uncertainty, fear, unknown, opportunities. Like that's what I'm good at is, is helping people like really get action oriented and start figuring out what works and what doesn't. Okay, then how about how copying in the past, which would make you successful, won't make you successful in the future? Yeah, so this is a, a trap we all fall into, right? Especially like a, this was really one of the insights for Unlearn. Now, after I wrote Lean Enterprise, I was going all over the world and I was literally in, in you know, boardrooms that I was like, what the hell am I doing in here? I don't even know why these people are inviting me. Like they know more, way more than me. But what I was finding was that the danger is with success, it actually encourages us to stick with what we've been doing, the method that worked for us, our, our favorite tools and techniques our secret sauce. Now, while that's great in a context, the world is constantly evolving. Technology is changing. Customer demand is changing. The way you can solve problems is constantly evolving. And if you're not sort of curious enough to think about, how could I do this a bit better? Is there another way to do it? You get stuck doing the things that made you successful five years ago, 10 years ago, Suddenly you wake up one morning and the world's totally changed and you're using the same moves that you did 20 years ago on the dance floor. And it's just not going to go down so well, folks. Uh, sorry to break it to you. And I think that's sort of this notion that we just have to be aware of and keep curious, keep trying new things. And w one of my favorite examples of this was um, I work with the, the Joe Norenia. He's, he's formerly the COO for HSBC Global Markets. And what he would constantly do is when new graduates came into HSBC, he would go and sit with them and he'd give them problems to work on he was working on, specifically to see what new tools, what new tech that they would use to try and solve those problems. So you can imagine in a company like HSBC, a massive global company, fairly hierarchical, and one of the most senior people in the company is sitting down with a bunch of grads and asking them, how do you solve this quantum problem? And there he's like playing around in Excel like he always has. And they're like running models on Google AI open APIs. And he's like, wow, I didn't even know that existed. That's cool. That's how you make these sort of unlearning moments happen. And I think that's sort of something because it creates a cultural artifact in those companies when you see the most senior people getting down with the most junior people and struggling stuff that they don't understand, but they get these breakthroughs and, and improve. And I think that's really special. And I'm sure he takes all the credit for it when it's when it succeeds. Only a bonus time, Sean. Only a bonus time. So with that, with companies right now, these huge corporations, their whole process, their decision process, what they're doing, where do you see the most room for growth or room for change? Yeah, so I think we're seeing some fascinating things in that space, right? So it, the classic hierarchical companies where the CEOs, the executives have all the answers and they just disseminate 
uh, the answers down or if anyone has a question and they don't know, they have to bubble the, the question up to get it answered. That is slow. Um, it's time consuming. One of my favorite examples of this was working with the executive team at Capital One. And now Rich Furbank is the founder of Capital One. He's been there for like 20 years. Right. And when they were trying to do their digital transformation, like most companies are like, we're doing a digital transformation. And everyone's like, OK, great. Well, how do we know what we're done? How do we know what success is? I uh, know we've built a new mobile app or we've replatformed it. That's all rubbish, right? It doesn't let people make decisions. So what he started asking Rich and the team was, tell me what would be happening in the world. What would your customers be doing differently? What would your teams be doing differently if you had digitally transformed? And instantly leaders then start telling you stories. Oh, our customers would be um, spending more with us. Actually, if a hundred bucks came into their current account, they'd reinvest 40 bucks back with us in new products that we've brought to market. Maybe brokerage accounts, maybe mortgages accounts. They'd actually buy more of our products because we're building such amazing products. I'm like, brilliant. Okay. So their outcomes, why don't we define them? Why don't you measure success by saying, we'll digitally transform when customers reinvest 40% of their wallet with us in new products that we've created in the last three years. Now, when you start talking to teams and giving them those sort of measures of success, not, don't say build me a mobile app. They'll sit there and go, okay, what features do you want? I'll just execute. But if I say to you, we need to increase customer reinvestment with us by 40% in the next two years in new products that we've brought to market. What ideas you got? Oh God, I think it's put in a resume and another company down the street. <laughs> right. But, but these are the sort of questions, right? Because when you give people problems to solve rather than go execute this task and make sure it's done by the end of the week, they're totally different ways that people's brains are activated. Right? You start activating all the smartest people in your, your company. That, that's the whole point of hiring folks, is that they're closer to problems, that they'll understand maybe how to solve them. The CEO can't have everything in their heads. So that's sort of the power of these companies. When they start giving outcomes to be achieved rather than outputs to be executed against, you start engaging people's creativity and they start coming up with better answers. And I think that's the place where most people want to work now. They, they don't want to be in a place where they come in, the manager hands them a document to be done by Friday at 5 p.m. They're not interested in that. They want problems to solve, getting close to their customers, building things, getting feedback as they try it. They're the sort of engaging places people want to be. So you were working with these big corporations, being a consultant for many years, but then you switched to, or you're with a big consultancy, but then you switched to more of an independent route. How was that transition? Why transition? Why not be in that comfortable position for a while? Well, you've just answered the question. Like that's, that makes me uncomfortable. The moment I'm like, this chair feels kind of nice. I'm like, okay, now it's time to move. Right. And I like all of these things are sort of learning experiences for me. Like before that I had been a builder, been working in startups and getting things off the ground. So consulting was a, a interesting way to see lots of different problems very quickly in different types of company and being in a big company well it was it was small at the time thoughtworks was maybe like a couple of thousand people today it just ipo'd actually 2 weeks ago there's just hundreds of like well tens of thousands of people that work there now but it was interesting for me at the time to be in a sort of smaller more maneuverable consultancy that i could see a lot of things and then it was just time for me to go out on my own i just felt like at the kind of things that i was interested in I always thought myself as more of a portfolio career and sort of being locked into like one company and I could only work with the clients of those companies. 
started to feel a little bit constricting. I wanted to get back to like building things and working with like lots of different companies and, and, and doing the type of work I, I wanted to do as well. And so that's sort of what led me down to go more independent. And I took board, like advisory boards on, uh, sorry, I took advisory positions on boards for startups, started building some of my own content and then still doing coaching with various different clients that I had. It was just, it just suited my style. And then yeah, no, it's been great sort of five years of doing that. And, and then this opportunity to come and do the venture studio sort of came along and it just felt like it was the sort of next right step for me to do. So let's hold off on the venture studio. We got a lot of questions there. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. But I, I also got to ask the teachings that you were doing with these huge companies, do they apply to startups? So I think there's lessons in leadership that apply everywhere. Right. Like one of my, another sort of one of my favorite experiences over the last 18 months was working with the exec team at Slack. So when the pandemic hit, this notion of asynchronous remote work just exploded, right? People would never worked in an office their whole life. They'd never had the opportunity to work with digital collaboration tools. So the exec team at Slack got in touch with me and said, Hey, we want to try and build a community where we can bring people together and share lessons learned from you know, asynchronous work or learning how to go, go remote. Uh, so, so we brought together like 500 executives from all around North America who were going through this sort of experience. You know, and there was companies of all shapes and sizes involved in that. Uh, early stage startups, scaling companies like Slack, massive Fortune 10s, Fortune 10 are massive exec companies. You see that people are all learning how to work in a different way together. And they're different experiences. You're a small company, you're a big company, but everyone needs to communicate. Everyone needs to get aligned. Everybody needs to understand what needs to be worked on, what progress is being made. So it was really fascinating to sort of see how to help people face the uncertainty of the pandemic and how they could manage their teams differently, how they could set outcomes for the teams to achieve rather than measuring them by what activity they're doing on a day to day looking at them at their desk, what time do they come in at? What time do they leave at? Measuring productivity by the check in, check out, rather than looking at the quality of work that they're producing. One of the biggest sort of aha moments of the whole pandemic is Slack have a forum. It's called the Future Forum. And they've been running these research experiments over the last two years to find out what's been the most important thing for people about working remotely. And most people think this sort of hybrid work scenario or being able to in the office, out of the office is the most important thing, but it's not. People care way more about when they work rather than where they work. 93% of people are more interested about when they're able to work, not where. What's your day like? Mine? Yeah. I wake up pretty early, go jogging, then in front of the computer, then uh, I'm there till I fall asleep. <laughs> right? <laughs> That works for you. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Not at all. But that's the reality right now. But no, I, I see what you're saying. Sometimes, I mean, I, I, I'm really productive in the morning, afternoon it's now, and then at night, really productive again. And that afternoon, I, I like to get other stuff done. Maybe even go to the gym for two, three hours there. The trip, work out, come back, take a nap. I don't know, but. Right. And this is a really fascinating sort of thing that nobody thought about. And it's all for different types of people situation. Super young people love working at night. They're just under device. Whenever, whenever it suits me to work, people with families, dropping kids off, trying to manage them. People who are like living their life, their best life, like you getting up doing 20K in the morning and you know, living the dream. Right. But it, it's this idea of when people work was a real insight. 
because most managers are used to managing people on site and making sure they're in at nine and they leave at five. The work gets done in that window. What they've seen now is when they actually start to understand giving people outcomes to be achieved rather than measuring them on their productivity of what time to come in and what time they leave at, they're actually getting better quality of work. They're getting happier employees. They're actually, some people are actually finding good balance, like your routine. Exercise, work hard, take a bit of time, work hard, go to bed. That's your style, right? And everyone has their own. And I think that's, again, another sort of unlearning for us, because all we've known is life in the factory. Since the industrial age, come into the factory, you click in, you click out. It's Monday to Friday, nine to five. Now that's the way it works because we never tried anything different. This sort of global experiment we all had to go through. There's lots of great innovations that came out of it. Now, speaking of innovations, it's time to go to Nobody Studio. What is it? What's the structure? What are the goals? Why, why is it going to be successful? Well, the, the, again, the sort of observation was at the moment, everyone's just trying to build a unicorn or bust. That's what the whole startup ecosystem is about, right? You notice you're raising capital for these folks, right? And it's all about how much capital can you raise? For our audience at home, he's plugging the investment bank in. Please uh, connect with me on LinkedIn to find out what my specialties are. All right, Barry, thank you for that. <laughs> right. But like you're seeing this, I'm sure yourself, right? Like anyone with a pitch deck is getting $10 million. They don't even need a prototype anymore. It is crazy, right? And, and this is what the lean startup movement was about. You only fund things when you see evidence that they're working. So the point of prototype is to test the market and see you've got traction. And, and then when you can validate that you've de-risked the business model and it's on, on growth trajectory, then start giving it some significant funding. So for me, I'm just doing the same stuff I've always been doing. I'm looking at problems in the world, but I've created a company with my, my fellow nobodies where it's literally like, let's have as many ideas as we can. Let's find out as frugally and time and capital efficient, how quickly we can test these ideas, de-risk them, find the winners, and then double down and start scaling them up. And because of the pace of innovation we were talking about earlier, we're not just trying to do like four or five companies. We're doing 100 companies over the next five years because the pace of innovation is going to be so fast you want to be doing lots of uh, early stage companies, getting them off the ground quickly, getting your, your earliest and most likely liquidity event actually is selling your company for under $200 million, right? Most people don't know that. When you get funded though, uh, an early stage company with like $10, $20 million, you've no choice but to have to build a unicorn if you ever want to see any upside from it. So it's like totally wrong. So what we're going to do is build lots of good, repeatable, scalable businesses, get them off the ground quickly, get them on a growth trajectory and wish them well and, and send them out into the world. And, and that's what Nobody Studios is going to do. Barry, I'm not sure if this we're going to become best friends over the next few years. <laughs> <laughs> You're just going to be getting random emails from me going, hey, Barry, any of those companies need to get acquired? Any, 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 anyone looking at any strategic and unsolicited acquisition offers? Any, any coming in the door? Well, you, you see, this is why like the venture capital love us because VC is great at putting capital behind companies that are growing and turning them into the companies that can't be, right? But the problem is VCs can't see the good deals from the bad deals now at the moment. And it's so competitive that you have to inflate prices just to, just to get one. But what we're doing is building these de-risked pre-seed stage companies that are on growth trajectories. And we're actually working with VCs who are like, 
Oh yeah, that's exactly the type of company we're brilliant at funding and scaling. So yeah, we'll, 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 we want to work like people like you and your industry are like, we want to work with you because this is, this is dream. You're de-risking deal flow for us, higher quality deals, better quality teams. This is, these are the companies we want to actually double down on and scale up. So it's, it's a perfect match for the ecosystem. What's missing. And I think that's in, in a way, like it's, I'm interested for your thoughts on this. I feel like that's what VC used to be about. That's what series A's and B's and C's were about. They, they were hurdles. But today it's in this world of, you got a pitch deck? Yeah. You got an idea? Well, wow, that's brilliant. You work at Stripe? Yeah, great. I'll, why don't you leave Stripe? I'll give you $10 million. Go build it. I got so many thoughts on that. We could do a whole other episode of it. Just the failure of raising money at a $15, $25 million valuation. So then you can't really exit because even when that strategic comes by and they go, oh yeah, we, don't buy, we want to buy this company. We're going to put the value at $15 million, which could be a great exit, except you've already raised money at a $25 million valuation. So you have to say no to the offer. It just, there's so many things. Barry, we got to get you back on the show. So with that though, I want to dive into what's harder finding the people to build these companies or finding the idea? That's a really, really great question. So in my earlier days, I used to think it was all about the idea, like that, that amazing idea. But I think what I've come to learn over the years is it's much more about people. If you can actually attract amazing people to the, to the team, to the mission, that's actually way more important because the first idea is very rarely the final idea that you end up with. This process of iteration, testing, learning, adapting as you go. We actually believe in the studio that we'll probably kill off like 40, 50% of the companies in the studio early because we figured out they're duds. Actually, my, my job in the studio is to be like the bad idea killer. I like actually go around and like looking to see like if we can't show evidence that this thing is working, let's capture the learnings, kill it and move on. But keep the team because these are great people. They're talented people. They're learning how to work well together. So that's what we've always focused on. We're people first. We're crowd first. So again, we're going to be the first venture studio to offer equity crowdfunding ever that we know of, where anyone, any retail investor is going to be able to own a stake in the studio and they earn at the studio level. So that means every company we create forever, they're going to see upside from, which again is a a fantastic investment opportunity because you're de-risked and, and, diversified from the start. And, and so I think that these are some of the like really interesting ways we're trying to change the way that the system is currently working. And that's what Nobody Studios is about. Um, causing some trouble, having some fun and building some great companies along the way. So you're disrupting the current VC model. Do you think the current VC model will stay around or do you think it's ripe for disruption? I think it's even Sequoia have said, I think in the last week, that there, there needs to be a little bit of a refresh from the system, right? Because it, it's actually happening whether you like it or not. So just like when we started off with entrepreneurs had to go to banks, you know, and say, hey, bank, I'm, I've got this great innovative idea. Will you fund me? And the banks look at them and go, well, you're, I don't know, you're not going to give you money, right? And then that's why VC came from, because entrepreneurs who, who'd had success we're like, don't go to the bank, come to us. We understand you. We'll give you the money. Now we're in this world where artists and creator communities are like, I've got a great idea community. Do you like what this idea could be about how I'm going to create a new album? Who will help me fund this new album? So crowdfunding came from. 
ideas that you believed in, the community behind you could, could fund you through crowdfunding. Now it's even ratcheting up even higher through non-fungible tokens and blockchain and where literally communities are spinning up, where people purchase NFTs to actually fund the whole community. So you've got things like Board 8 Yacht Club, which is like a group of people who are community who are trying to build a brand, product, services of everybody in that community. And the reason their NFTs are so high is because you can't access the community if you don't have the NFT. You don't have the badge, the sticker, the membership, right? And this is amazing. You got people like Steph Curry who are joining this, like uh, Post Malone, like all all these artists all come together in this community that you start work together. And I guarantee you're going to see like t-shirts, fashion, apparel, music, because collaboration is going to happen within that community that is funding itself by creating these tokens. So I don't know, do you need VC anymore? I don't know. You tell me, right? And, and it's not going to wipe everything out, but it gives you a sense around the edges that things are starting to change. Finance is no longer the problem. It's actually community is the problem. And if you can build a community, there's loads of mechanisms for the community to fund itself now. And that's kind of interesting. This idea of yours, the studio, how far along are you? Do you have any stories of any companies you're working with or ideas out there? What can you share with us? And keep in mind, this episode is going to be going live December of 2021. Yeah, so we're 14 companies in development, uh, three in market. Probably the one I'm most excited about at the moment is Ovations. It's founded by Ray Leonard Jr. It's an on-demand events platform where literally you can, maybe you're holding your next quarterly planning event or company offsite. How would you like to book Magic Johnson for 10 minutes to come in and give a speech to your team about what it's like to lead a winning team and what's involved in that for a couple hundred bucks? That's innovations. Boom. Right. So that's one of our companies straight out the gate. Another one is Parentipity. It's a creator community where parents can share tips and monetize their intellectual property or insights uh, with the crowd. Right. So typically when you go onto a lot of these platforms, LinkedIn, whatever, you know, even if you do a thousand views, you're, you're lucky if you get like 30 cents for a thousand views. So why not give them a greater proportion if you're creating content, uh, see more of it. And we've got a collectibles business. So collectibles is literally going through the roof at the moment. It's like a $320 billion industry. And most of the best collectibles are all hidden in your garage and your junk. Nobody knows where they are. So we've got a, a, a company coming out, which is all about helping people unleash the treasure hunters. So the best people to go looking for that stuff are your grandkids. They've got phones. They can scan different devices and figure out, get them appraised. Uh, so that's another one. And then we've got some pretty interesting health and wellness companies. And um, Prehab Life is one about premeditative helping people not end up in rehab. Rehab has horrific uh, success rates, like two or three percent. So why wait till you get to rehab to try and fix yourself? So prehab is this idea of when people have dips, how do you help them catch them and catch them earlier in the piece so they can come up rather than go all the way down? So there's like. It's an explosion of companies we're doing. It's re- really fascinating to me. And if you want to learn more, go check out nobodystudios.com and all the companies are up there. One resonates, you know, ping out, reach out. We're looking for talent, influence, and capital. Come and help us. All right. We'll have all that information in the show notes. And Barry, I also have to ask, you've lived all over the world. You've had this amazing work-life balance where you're in Australia, London, Scotland, Edinburgh, all over. How have you been able to do this dream life? Like, 
Any advice, any suggestions? Well, it's one of these things, again, where people always say to me, like, how can you move so much? It must be so hard. And the answer is, it's not easy, but it's not that hard, right? Like, and what I've learned is that the world's a big place. You know, if you want to learn where all the best food is, you have to travel. That's the way it works. Go and experience it, right? We've only a short amount of time on this planet. Like, why not live everywhere? Why not experience what the world's got to offer? Why stay in one small place? And that's always been our philosophy. My wife works for the World Health Organization. So by definition, she gets placed in all these places. So that's also a forcing function. But this is, this is what I'm about. I love experiences. That's, that's the kind of person I am. And I think the opportunity to go and live in these places is a gift. You know, give it a go. You might surprise yourself. And I want to close with your beliefs. Okay, why do you pick them? They're on your website. Everyone, once again, go to his site. But how did you choose them? What are you working on? What is the best way to go about doing that? Yeah, so one of the things I've always uh, believed in, as you say, is just sharing with the world what you're about, what your values are, what matters to you, what doesn't. Because it's the best lightning rod. You attract the right type of people to you. And it, uh, it, it, it's easy to push away the people that are not going on the same path as you. And I think one of, it's funny, whenever I work with people, like one of the first things they always say to me is, oh, I read your site and I saw uh, your beliefs there. And that one resonated with me. And here's my story why. This one resonated with me. Here's why. So straight away, it allows you to start understanding people, like at a much deeper level. And um, yeah, so it's just been a great way to connect with people. And then uh, people recognize that I'm not the right fit to work with them, to hang out with them, or to build companies with them, whatever it might be. And I think, yeah, I'd always encourage people like try and write down some of your own sort of belief statements, principles, and communicate them to people. You'd be amazed who it attracts and, and, and saves you the people that you don't want to deal with in life. All right. And Barry, with that, one more time, web address, contact information. How can people get a hold of you or learn what you're doing? Yeah, so nobodystudios.com is the venture studio. Please check us out. We're about to do an equity crowdfunding in the next couple of weeks. I think it's going to be an amazing opportunity to be part of one of the best adventures of your life. Uh, but for more about me, it's barryoreilly.com. I'm bar at Barry O'Reilly on pretty much any social media platform you can imagine. Please connect, share your stories. I'm always interested. You know, if you're interested in what we're doing, again, reach out and hopefully we might have a chance to work together. Fantastic. And for our audience, please check us out on the silicon valley podcast.com check all our social media handles they're all either sean flynn sv or the silicon valley podcast uh we're on youtube twitter linkedin all those and connect with me on linkedin if you're looking for a mid-market investment banker focused mergers acquisition growth and secondaries and with that barry i want to thank you for your time today on the silicon valley podcast great show sean thanks Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.